You're listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast, brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. Our Public Policy and Regulation Group is a strong bipartisan team with deep ties throughout Washington, D.C. We have built a thriving government affairs practice through our depth of experience and diversity, and by maintaining our bipartisan approach. The first 100 days of the Biden administration podcast series will take a look at the current political landscape and what listeners should anticipate to see from all facets of law facing this new administration. Hi, this is Miranda Franco, Senior Policy Advisor with Holland and Knight. I am thrilled to be part of the first healthcare element of the Eyes on Washington podcast. I am joined by two of my colleagues, Rob Radner, who is a partner with the firm and has been with the firm for over 20 years. Is that right, Rob? That's correct. Great. And then Suzanne Joy, who is the brand new addition to our team. She is a Senior Public Affairs Advisor who joined us just are you at the three-week mark yet? Just over. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for kind of calling attention to that, Miranda. Of course. Of course. So you have the whole spectrum here um, of sort of eight years uh, with my time here at Holland and I, and then we have Rob, who is sort of our uh, most tenured uh, health team member within the firm. And then we also have other health policy team members that we work with that I'm sure you will hear in a future podcast um, forthcoming. So today, though, we really want to talk about the House markup of the COVID-19 relief package, the bill status, where the administration and the 117th will turn their attention once we get through this first relief package. So Rob, can you give us a brief overview of the reconciliation process and the health-related provisions that are contained within the COVID package? Um, sure. This process dates back to the 1974 Budget Act, and it sets out uh, a mechanism by which you can do a budget resolution, which is a broad outline of what Congress wants to do in the coming fiscal year's budget, and then include instructions in that budget resolution that tell committees of jurisdiction to make changes in revenues and changes in uh, direct appropriations or mandatory spending in order to bring those programs in line with the budget constraints set out in the resolution. So typically it's used to make changes in Medicare, an entitlement program. Typically it is used to make changes in taxes, could be used to make changes in farm programs. Now the significance of budget reconciliation is that, as you may know, Almost everything in the Senate requires 60 votes, but you can pass a budget reconciliation bill with only 51 votes. So it's a very powerful tool when you can't get um, uh, bipartisan uh, agreement. And the flip side of that is something called the Bird Rule, which essentially says you can't have anything extraneous in there. If you have something in there that doesn't directly pertain to revenues or directly pertain to spending, uh, it can be knocked out on a point of order. So budget reconciliation is a useful tool, but it's also a limited tool. And so now that we're going through this process, it looks like reconciliation is the vehicle forward. What can health stakeholders assume will be included in this package? So the administration's first thing out of the box is this $1.99 trillion proposal uh, known as the American Recovery Act, 
to address the COVID pandemic, both the, the public health situation and the economic impact. It is the sole focus right now. Um, the administration set up an outline of that proposal a little while back. Uh, last week, the House uh, went first and all of their committees marked up their pieces of this. Um, next week, the House will pass it. Then it will go over to the Senate where they're expected to swap it out with something uh, that they'll vote on on the floor that probably be very similar but may have some changes and then try to get that up to the president. Um, that's that's sort of the timetable. They're, they're working against the fact that the enhanced unemployment benefits expire on March 15th. So if you think about it that way, this has to get done before then. Um, it has a lot of different things in it, including aid to state and local governments, unemployment, uh, extended and expanded benefits, um, uh, various manner of, of economic stimulus. On the healthcare side, um, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of public health uh, funding for um, uh, the implementation of a national uh, testing strategy to support the administration and distribution of vaccines, uh, a significant amount of money to go to community health centers, a significant amount of money to go to create what they're calling a, a health core, which is a, you know, a workforce of community health workers and others that would promote outreach into those communities around texting, texting testing, excuse me, and vaccination, um, uh, and a number of other sort of spending items along those lines. Um, there are also some Medicaid provisions that would provide some additional, what's called FMAP, Medicaid matching funding under certain circumstances. Uh, currently in the House, they're trying to kind of leverage that against um, states that haven't expanded their Medicaid programs. Um, there's a significant amount of money for child care, which isn't inherently a healthcare item, but is very related to, uh, you know, there's this huge problem with people who can't work um, because the kids aren't in school. And there's, and, and to that point, there's a lot of money in there for public education and for higher education, public and private, uh, to, to um, do the things that they need to do to try to reopen. And it sounds like some of the things that people expected to be in there may have been left out this round, uh, in particular, Medicare and the provider relief fund that I think people were hoping we would see sort of a replenishment of in a new package. Do you have any insight there about sort of when those type of provisions may be addressed? Over the past year, 2020, Congress created and provided $175 billion for what's commonly known as the provider relief fund. And it's designed to help all manner of healthcare providers who have had dramatic revenue losses due to either government mandated uh, shutdowns of non-essential services or uh, due to another phenomenon, which is people simply staying away and delaying or deferring care, um, as well as expenses in responding to the COVID epidemic, you know, enhanced PPE costs, that sort of thing, setting up of, you know, vaccination or testing sites, uh, Staffing, staffing, um, you know, uh, spillover uh, healthcare facilities that are being that were being set set up in uh, sports stadiums, that sort of thing. So that's the purpose of it. A lot of that money was distributed by the Trump administration in a variety of uh, tranches of funding over 2020, and there's still unspent. Um, the estimates vary, but I think it's probably 30 to 40 billion. 
Um, so a, a consulting analysis the other day that pegged it at 40 billion. Um, so there's still a fair amount of money in there uh, to be pushed out. And people were expecting that in this bill, they would replenish the fund and the House did not do so. Um, and this is because the Biden administration is, and Biden's, they're a little slow staffing up. Um, and what they're saying is they really want to get their arms around, okay, what has been spent to date? Who has received it? Who still needs a lot of help? And who is actually in not too bad of condition? There are certain institutions that really, you know, have weathered this better than others. In general, people with a lot of Medicaid, uh, a lot of uninsured, um, and a lot of sort of discretionary or elastic healthcare services have suffered significantly greater impact than others. So, you know, I'm hearing from hospitals who say, well, you know, we're actually okay right now. And then other hospitals uh, and healthcare providers are saying, no, we are, we are, we have significant uncompensated losses and we are continuing to incur huge losses into 2021. So there's, they're sorting that out and trying to figure out what's to go next. The, you may see, Per what I was just saying, you may see the Senate bill uh, doesn't agree with the House on that and put some more funding in. We'll probably find that out next week. Um, but that's that's certainly one thing that was not in there. And, I, um, and efforts to make some of the telehealth um, uh, freedoms that have been allowed during the pandemic, chief among them not limiting telehealth reimbursement under Medicare uh, or Medicaid to a patient who's in a rural or underserved area and um, uh, and even allowing them to be served in their home where they don't have to be at a provider site. Those are two very significant waivers that are in place. And a lot of people really see this as an opportunity to lock in and make permanent um, some of the um, uh, advantages of telehealth on a going forward basis. So that's not in there either. That's helpful, Rob, and I think we're going to pivot to a broader telehealth conversation in a minute. So my last question around the rescue plan that's moving along now is the intent is to have this passed before March 14th when the unemployment insurance provisions expire. So once this advances and presumably is signed by the president, do you think we'll see another relief package this year? As I understand it, first of all, they're not, they're not signaling or talking about anything else. And when I say them, I mean the Democrats in Congress and the administration uh, until this bill gets done. This is job one, two, and three right now. Um, when it gets done, and I would expect it to get done, they are going to turn to an infrastructure bill. And they're talking about another very large multi-trillion dollar kind of thing. But they're talking about infrastructure in a more, um, in, in a broad sense of the term. So we're not just talking about roads and bridges and harbors and uh, rail. We're also talking about investments in uh, addressing uh, environmental injustice, in investing in significant uh, things that will move away from fossil fuels towards greener options. Uh, and the conversation also includes healthcare infrastructure. Uh, last summer, when the Democrats in the House passed an infrastructure bill, they included funding um, uh, for a um, old program from the 60s that provides funding for uh, largely public or safety net healthcare institutions. Um, and they revived that in that bill last summer. So it's quite possible you'll see things like that in this bill. Um, and this will turn into a complicated conversation because they want to pay for some of this with corporate 
tax changes and and higher taxes on wealthy individuals. So I think it just remains to be seen whether Congress is going to have the bandwidth for another multi-trillion dollar bill that has tax increases in it. Um, after that, they will move to the regular uh, FY22 budget process and another budget reconciliation bill that will um, that will dig in on Medicare and Medicaid issues, among other things. That's helpful. So all attention for now is sort of on responding to the pandemic and trying to address the funding that's needed and the vaccine rollout. But there are some key themes to watch um, that will likely emerge after this final this first package is addressed. Things like coverage expansion, which Rob touched on a bit with the FMAP piece that's included currently in the release package, as well as things like rolling back the work requirements, which we've seen um, the administration already do in the Medicaid space. Rob also touched on telehealth expansion, which is a, a huge theme that I think we'll see moving forward and advancing health equity, just to name a few of, of some of the um, areas where both Congress and the administration will really want to focus both sort of in the immediate term, but also in the long term. So Suzanne, in the face of the pandemic, both CMS and commercial payers have sort of let the reimbursement walls come tumbling down. And the consensus is that there's no turning back. And again, sort of Rob touched on this as it pertains to the originated, originating geographic sites and those flexibilities that have been advanced. But can you tell us a bit more about the additional flexibilities and um, you know, what do you think the Congress and the administration may do moving forward to make some of these things more permanent. Yeah, thanks, Miranda. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, every single state, including you know the District of Columbia, they have in place expanded telehealth coverage requirements so that they can um, respond to this pandemic, and it's been very popular. Um, the main concern right now is how many of these are going to extend beyond the pandemic, right? So Medicare, as Rob pointed out, lifted geographic and site of service limitations, which is what he was mentioning with getting these services delivered in patients' homes and to patients that aren't only in rural areas, which is actually, I think, a huge misconception that these services are usually pretty more widely available. Another couple of the temporary changes has been allowing home health visits um, to be delivered via telehealth and then allowing remote patient monitoring for new patients um, strictly are only allowed as long as the public health emergency is in place. So there's a lot of eyes on the administration of you know how many of these they're actually going to make permanent. And then on the private sector side, it's really kind of a smattering of you know whether they've kind of followed suit with Medicare, but it's certainly not consistent. Um, so the big question is how many of these are going to kind of outlast the pandemic. And I think a lot of that really depends on how available, affordable, and accessible these technologies are in the market. And then of course, that reimbursement and billing piece. Um, so Medicare has kind of taken one first step. They added over 60 services to the permanent um, telehealth services list. So that was a pretty major change. But again, we're running into these issues with the geographic and site of service limitations because they're actually running into some statutory limitations and they don't actually have the authority to do that without an act of Congress. Now, the good news is that actually has been an area, as Rob pointed out, that there's been a lot of interest and focus in um, as kind of, a, I think, low-hanging fruit way to expand telehealth service coverage. So I do think 
there's a reasonable likelihood Congress could move on that. Another big piece that Congress has been really interested in is expanding broadband access. Um, it's a huge problem. One in five Americans living in rural areas doesn't have reliable access to broadband, and that obviously limits their ability to access these services. So the December package, the most recent um, COVID relief package, included $250 million um, for the FCC's COVID telehealth program that helps to expand access. So we'll be also watching for more federal funding on that front. And then sort of the last kind of in, you know, big piece that I'll mention here today is the difference between visual audio and then audio only, which has come up also in terms of a health equity and access um, piece. Because again, you know, there's a lot of differences when we're talking about, you know, elderly patients or patients in rural areas don't always have the same ability to access these more advanced and sophisticated um, visual components. And so they're really relying on telephone calls with their providers at this time. And there's really kind of a more scattered pattern, um, patchwork of how payers are reimbursing for these services and whether they're reimbursing. Um, it's a lot more you know, hit and go on the private payer side. Right now, it's still only temporary on the Medicare side as long as the um, public health emergency is in place. So I think that'll be a really interesting piece um, in terms of, you know, it's very much more a question mark and up in the air of whether um, audio only services will also continue to be reimbursed past the pandemic. Yeah, Suzanne, I'm glad you brought that up. And I know there's actually a number of pieces of legislation that are sponsored by various members in the House and Senate side that address just that exact issue. And it really is a nice sort of dovetail into the equity conversation, because when we talk about social determinants of health, they're usually talked about in the context of how it informs outcomes, but it also really affects how people use technology. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why there's been such expressed interest in, in discussing broadband access, discussing audio only, um, and some of these other components in the larger um, discussion around health equity. And so, of course, the coronavirus put a spotlight on healthcare inequities in, this, in the past year. Those have clearly historically existed for quite some time, but I think they've really come to bear um, in the midst of this pandemic. And so the administration has made it clear that addressing health inequities will be a key focus for the administration. There's been a number of executive orders advanced um, to that end already. And so while some of these systemic changes will obviously take a long time to address, um, are there things that you think we'll see the administration do beyond some of the EOs that have already been rolled back um, that could quickly uh, take, take hold and, and sort of move the health equity um, ball forward, for lack of a better word? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you mentioned, they've already taken a couple of steps and, you know, just looking at the COVID pandemic alone, they've established the health equity task force and they've directed agencies to take reasonable steps to ensure there's an equitable pandemic response. So even just in terms of the pandemic, I think they're absolutely looking at it through an equity lens. Um, but as you said, you know, it stretches beyond that for sure. Um, and they've taken steps, I would say, already um, a huge area of focus has been in the um, coverage and access space, which as we all know has huge implications for equity. So, um, you know, they extended the special enrollment period for ACA marketplace plans, um, which tends to be, you know, for underinsured or uninsured individuals. Um, they ordered what they're calling a top to bottom review of the public charge rule, um, which basically says that the federal government has the ability to deny entry to the country or citizenship based on whether or not you would be likely 
likely to receive public health benefits, such as Medicaid or CHIP, or, you know, those kinds of programs. And then they also just, I believe, last week um, took the first steps towards starting to roll back some of those Medicaid work requirements, which I know was spoken on earlier. So I think they're hitting that piece really hard and really aggressively kind of out of the gate. Um, and I think that there's going to be definitely more discussions to come. Um, on the Congress side, they also have an ability through the Congressional Review Act to take a look at some of the um, what they call midnight regulations that were passed at sort of the last 60 days of the previous administration. So with the Democratic Congress, uh, I think to the extent that there is oxygen in the room, they could definitely be taking a look um, at some of those equity and health um, provisions that there were quite a few that rolled out the door in the last two months of the Trump administration. Um, and as we as Rob spoke about, um, Congress ultimately gets the final say in the budget. They're the ones that kind of drafted and um, they will certainly um, be focusing on health equity again. Um, just a couple of examples, as Rob mentioned, the community health center funding is going to be huge for those underserved communities. And then they're also taking steps, for instance, to mitigate the pandemic in the prison and jail system, which as we all know, are historically overrepresented with minorities. So I think that there's going to be a lot of movement on this issue, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think also Chairman Neal has laid out a framework on addressing health equity. So there's a lot of movement already happening to sort of lay the foundation and, and set the stage for what Congress could do legislatively around this. And I think it's a real opportunity, too, for stakeholders. And I know we're working with a lot of clients on, on opportunities to demonstrate what they've already been doing in this space to try to drive improve outcomes and better equity in their communities. So it's, it's definitely an area to, to watch and to engage in as much as possible. Um, Suzanne, another way to address health equity is through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. You know, they have the authority to create and test payment systems without congressional approval. Um, we have some new folks coming to the helm. I think we it's presumed that Liz Fowler will be the head of CMMI, and, and she was quite integral um, as a congressional staffer in sort of advancing the Affordable Care Act and obviously has a great wealth of health experience. So I'm just wondering, you know, how you think CMI can be used as a lever to drive equity and if they'll have a shift in focus and priorities from what we saw um, in the previous administration. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. And there's been a lot of, you know, interest and speculation in this exact area because CMMI does have its own pretty healthy budget for serving as, you know, the body to kind of test out these new innovative ideas. And, you know, obviously with the reimbursement and the money goes <laughs> the support um, for many of these critical programs. So I, you know, there's been a lot of talk with the previous administration. I think without question, a huge focus of theirs was on sort of shifting that balance and Kind of pushing um, providers and health systems into risk-bearing arrangements. Um, they made tweaks to, you know, current programs when they were there that, you know, more aggressively pushed um, ACOs, for instance, towards higher risk-bearing models. Um, and they created a bunch of new demos, such as the direct contracting model, that are kind of similar to Medicare or, excuse me. Um, MA managed care organization. So again, really shifting kind of the, the risk on both sides. Um, and with the Biden administration, um, to your point with some of the administration officials that are coming in and just what we've seen from kind of the 
information that his transition team has put out, they seem to be a lot more focused on just getting clinicians into these models, um, which has been lagging a lot behind what where we thought we would be, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, so I think their focus is really on just increasing participation in these models, getting physician buy-in, um, and certainly to your point, um, using these models and the funding that comes with them to really think creatively and inject some funding support, um, particularly kind of on the front end for some of these really innovative ideas that are coming out to kind of create a little more equal access um, and just kind of new ways of addressing some of these health disparity um, and equity concerns. And I know a big area of focus, for example, um, has been maternal um, health and maternal mortality rates. Um, so I think we can definitely expect to see some models rolling out. It'll take a little while for them, I think, to get <laughs> um, in seats and just get going. But um, I think we can certainly expect with reasonable certainty we'll see some movement on that. Great, thanks Suzanne. So we have barely scratched the surface of all of the themes that I think we'll see in the healthcare space moving forward in both the near term and long term, but that leaves us with plenty to discuss on a future podcast. Um, but before we close, Rob, Suzanne, do you have any parting thoughts? I think the one we didn't really mention was the Biden administration's focus on expanding coverage. And what I would expect to see is uh, some version of his proposal that's been in congressional legislation for a couple of years to change the what are known as the premium tax credits that individuals receive as a subsidy to purchase a plan on the uh, exchange. And under the original Affordable Care Act, those cut off at 400% of poverty and decline significantly as you approach that number. But that creates a cliff. So if your family's at 405% of poverty, you get no assistance. So they have a they have a different approach that would take the credit structure up to 600% of FPL and graduate it a little differently and includes uh, include a, a backstop so that you're not spending more than 8.5% of your income on your insurance policy. So that's another one to watch because I think that has a lot of legs. Rob, do you think that the Democrats could get any Republicans to go along with that kind of proposal? Or do you think the Democrats are out on their own on that? I would think they're probably significantly out on their own, but I am on, I'm not ruling out on any of these things that they will get some Republican support. And yeah, and I'll just add um, on just because it's top of mind with the CMMI, you know, obviously, Silver lining is kind of a strange word to use, but I do think one of the other um, spotlights that the COVID pandemic has kind of shown on the healthcare system is the issue with the fee-for-service system and how, you know, virtually overnight people stopped going in to see their doctors and it's hugely unpredictable, which is why we've had to see all of these, you know, provider relief funds and everything else kind of injected to just keep practices alive. And so I actually think it has created quite a bit of interest um, in alternative payment models and potentially, you know, trading off some of the higher earning potential um, in exchange for more upfront predictability and getting kind of those more regular payments in the door. So um, just in general, I think that we might see quite an uptick in participation in um, APMs by virtue of that. Yeah, that's a really good point, Suzanne. And I'll just close with sort of building off of that. I think there's going to be a huge focus on leveraging data 
and better understanding all the deferred treatment that has happened um, and to understand how that will impact outcomes moving forward and if we have to risk adjust for people who have deferred treatment and also using that data to inform a lot of what Congress is going to try to do around health equity and telehealth and some of the themes that we talked about because I think people really need to understand that the outcomes rendered by virtual visits are comparable to in-person visits. So I think Congress is sort of thirsty to, to have this information and this data moving forward to help drive some of these policy initiatives. So with that, I think we will, we will wrap here, leaving many other topics to address in future iterations of, of this um, version of the Healthcare Podcast on Eyes on Washington. So Suzanne, Rob, thank you so much for your time and um, everyone have a great afternoon. Thank you for listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.